Our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to invite you to keep your Bibles open on your lap. This is going to be a flipper sermon, so I want you to be able to flip if you want to flip. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this is the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning, make your book live. Open it up for us. We have to have eyes to see. We have to have ears to hear. In the, in the words of the old gospel hymn, all is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One comes down. We need that, Lord. Send your Holy One down upon us. Send the Holy Spirit and fill us and enliven us and rebuke us if we need rebuking. Correct us if we need correcting. Remind us if we need reminding. But fill us. Fill us till there's no room for sin and self. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Well, last week we learned from this passage that apart from Christ... We're dead. Uh, dead in trespasses and sins is how Paul says it. Now, recall that I explained to you in an unnecessarily complex way that to be dead is to be no longer able to draw life from your environment in such a way that it sustains your life. You need stuff from your environment to live, and when you're dead, you can't do it anymore. For the body, this environment is the natural world, and the things that are drawn into the body are things like air and food and water. For the spirit, this environment is God himself. God is like the ocean in which the human spirit swims. And the Bible talks about things like spiritual food and spiritual drink and things like that as a, a metaphor for these life-giving energies that a living spirit must draw from God in order to continue to be a living spirit. A dead spirit, which is our default position, it's how we're born, we're born dead. A dead soul is surrounded by all of these life-giving energies. God's still there, but the dead spirit can't draw them in. Indeed, the dead spirit is unaware of them. Let me give you an example. Right now, my voice is being transmitted through this room in two ways. Uh, it's passing through the air, and it's transmitting vibrations through your eardrums. And everyone who can hear normally has access to my voice this way. But it's also going through the air as an FM radio signal uh, set by that transmitter at the back on frequency 87.9 FM. And we've got, we bought during parking lot worship, we bought a, an FM transmitter so that we could, you could listen in your cars and then we, 
we're done listening in the car, and we thought, we'll just bring this thing in, and we'll use it for those that are hearing impaired. And, and uh, I started uh, encouraging folks to get these little $15 radios from Amazon that sit in your pocket, and you can put the headphones in, and you can hear the sermon on the radio. And this transmitter doesn't just cover this room. It actually, according to Nancy, she heard me yammering a mile away one Sunday morning when we were doing parking lot worship. So my voice, I'm sure the brick cuts the distance, but my voice is passing through all of these apartments and all of these houses around here. And when I, when I read the Word of God a few minutes ago, it was all around the people in those apartments and the people in these houses, but they're utterly unable to access it. They're utterly unaware of it unless they have their radio tuned to 89.7, which isn't a radio station any other time, and they have to have it at exactly the right place and exactly the right time, or they can't hear me. They lack the right equipment, and so they're dead to my voice. It's all around them all the time during this hour and a half, but they can't hear it. That's how it is with God and the, the person who's dead in their trespasses and sins. They go along with their existence, which they think of as living, but which is really just dying. And the voice and the presence and the power of God is all around them, but they're dead to it. Now, there's a lot of similarity between being physically dead and being spiritually dead, but there is one key difference. Physically dead people stop moving, but the spiritually dead don't. I don't know if it happens anymore, but it, it used to be in the penitentiary that when a prisoner was being taken to his execution, they would say, dead man walking. Well, we find out this week that the spiritually dead man is literally a dead man walking. They're like zombies, the horror of decay that keeps mindlessly lurching on, trying to fulfill some depraved and disgusting appetite. I, I don't watch very many zombie movies. I don't find them all that edifying, but I've watched a few of them. And, and depending on which movie you watch, the, the zombies are after something. And, and in the ones that, the old ones at least, they're after brains. They want your brains. And the spiritual zombie is lurching mindlessly forward, trying to find something to eat, trying to find something that will fulfill the passions of his flesh. Now, what is the flesh? Well, as Paul is using this word here, he's not referring simply to our bodies. Perhaps the, the best definition of the flesh that I ever heard of is just the natural abilities and capacities that a person has, but they're disconnected from God. And so because they're disconnected for, from God, they become destructive and disordered and messed up. Now, notice that in this world, as it says in Ephesians 1-2, in this world, literally this age, as opposed to the age that is to come when Christ returns and is triumphant, this world, says the Scripture, is utterly dominated by ongoing patterns of destructive behavior, fleshly behavior. And, and in this world, the important things that a lost person could actually know about God, because God's made them plain so that people are without excuse, they can't come to judgment day and go, I didn't know about anything about any of this. And God will say, no, that's not true. 
I left myself markers in nature. It's just that they're not just ignored. According to Romans chapter 1, the things that we could know about God just by looking around us are actually actively suppressed by the lost world, by men and women who are pursuing the appetites of the flesh. And then notice who's running the show. The prince of the power of the air, Satan. Now, it's worth mentioning that the Bible teaches that the human being has three main enemies. Three forces that must be overcome if a human being is to flourish naturally and spiritually. And these three forces work together against your well-being, and they're interlocked. And this is true whether you're saved or whether you're lost. And these three forces are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here they are laid out for you here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You find the world mentioned, you find the lusts of the flesh mentioned, and you find the devil mentioned. Now, for the person who's dead in trespasses and sins, these forces simply dominate their life. It's unavoidable. It's uncontrollable. No resistance is possible because the part of them that should be able to mount a defense against the world, the flesh, and the devil is dead. It's, it's not working. They've got no place to stand, to push against it. And when God makes you alive, he gives you a place of stability within yourself. He gives you a place to stand in order to battle against the power of the world and the flesh and the devil in your life. He gives you new abilities. He gives you new information. He gives you new weapons with which to fight. And then he commands you to fight. You are actually all under the command to fight. You are at war. Whether you understand it or not, whether you believe it or not, you're supposed to be at war. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 13th chapter. I, I've asked for it to be put up as a slide. And, uh, and, it, and it's just a wonderful, I love the Westminster Confession. It's a wonderful old document that just makes all these things plain. Listen to this, just great information about what's going on inside of you right now if you're in Christ Jesus. Those who are effectually called and regenerated have a new heart and a new spirit created in them. They are additionally sanctified, actually and personally, by the power of Christ's death and resurrection and by the word and the spirit dwelling in them. The power of sin ruling over the whole body is destroyed and the desires of the old self are more and more weakened and killed. At the same time, the ability to practice true holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, is brought to life and strengthened by all saving graces. This sanctification works in the whole person, but not completely or perfectly in this life. The old sinful nature retains some of its control in body and mind and spirit. And so the continual and irreconcilable war goes on in every believer. You are in a continual and irreconcilable war inside of you, and you're supposed to be. The old nature tries to get its way in opposition to the spirit, and the spirit fights to assert its authority over the flesh. Although the old nature temporarily wins battles in this warfare, the continual strengthening of the sanctifying spirit of Christ enables the regenerate nature in each believer to overcome. 
And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. That's the first scripture I ever learned as a 15-year-old Christian. Now, today, we're going to talk about the devil. And there are many things that the Bible tells us about the devil. And I obviously can't cover all of these things, but I can cover some important things today. And the first thing I want to talk about is Satan's origin, where he came from. Second, I want to talk about Satan's rule, his authority, his reign, how he works. And thirdly, I want to talk just briefly about some very simple, practical ways to go about handling the devil and his works. So where did Satan come from? Well, the Bible only makes a couple of veiled references that have traditionally been thought to have double meanings. Now, if you, you want to understand what I mean by that, open up your, your Bible to, to Isaiah chapter 14, and we're going to see in two passages in the Old Testament, one in Isaiah and one in Ezekiel, we're going to see these passages that are, they talk about a person, and then they say things about the person that couldn't possibly be true of the person. And so there's this, seems to be this, this double meaning. And, and in Isaiah 14, we find that the prophet Isaiah and anticipates God's eventual judgment on Babylon and on the king of Babylon. And so a bunch of this passage discusses what is obviously the military defeat of a human king. And they're talking about other kings coming and, and gloating and all these other sorts of things. Um, and then when you get to Isaiah 14 and verse 12, the language shifts to discuss someone who, who describes someone who seems to be more than merely human. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 through 15. Oh, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who, are, who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, you have the king of Babylon, and then all of a sudden you have this figure, Odaystar, son of the dawn, or Lucifer is the Latin translation. There's another one that's perhaps clearer, and we find that in Ezekiel chapter 28. So go Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapter 28. Once again, the, the subject uh, initially is a human king, and he's identified as the prince of Tyre. Um, subject, this is a, he's the subject in the beginning of the passage. Now, Tyre was a city that is north. It's in what today is Lebanon, and it was a very important city. It was a maritime power. It was actually initially built on a little island off the shore, 
And if you look at it on a map today, you will find that it's not on an island, it's on a peninsula. And the reason it's on a peninsula is when Alexander the Great approached and said to the city of Tyre, give up, throw open your gates, and I won't destroy everything. Uh, the, the people of Tyre went, nobody's ever conquered us because we're on an island. And Alexander the Great said, I'll fix that. And he just brought a bunch of dirt and filled in the ocean and all this, and walked right across to the island because it wasn't an island anymore. And he conquered the city of Tyre and he was pretty darn hard on it. So once again, this, uh, this is a, a rich city. It's a powerful city. It's a, it's a militarily important city. It's a rich uh, trading. It, it does international maritime trade. And, and the Prince of Tyre is described here in Ezekiel 28 as one who is powerful and one who is wise. He's even said to be wiser than the prophet Daniel. And by his wisdom, he got rich. And his heart started to say, man, look at me. I'm a god. And God says to him, no, you aren't. And I'll prove it to you by turning you over to a foreign army whose kings will kill you themselves. But then in Ezekiel 28 and verse 11, God starts what's called the lament for the fallen king of Tyre, but he says, once again, says things about him that couldn't possibly be true of the earthly king of Tyre. So look at, it, uh, at Ezekiel 28 and starting in verse 11, a lament over the king of Tyre is what the passage is called. And listen to what the Lord says. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius and topaz and diamond, beryl and onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you where the holy mountain of God, where, I'm sorry, I, pla I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Well, the, the king of Tyre wasn't with God in the Garden of Eden. The king of Tyre wasn't a guardian angel. The king of Tyre didn't walk on the holy mountain in the stones of fire. He was never blameless in his ways from his creation. And as a matter of fact, the only individual that the Bible says uh, was created was Adam and then later Eve. Everyone else the Bible refers to as one who is born or born of woman, not created. So clearly there's a kind of a, a, a double meaning here. So here's what we can know. Satan was originally an angel, and when he was created, he was good. According to Ezekiel 28, 14, he was a cherub. 
Now, there are different species of angels. It, it shouldn't surprise us that the God who created this world and filled it with such a diversity of living things and then created human beings and all of our different races and colors and all the beauties and the splendors of the human family. It, it shouldn't surprise us at all that he created in the spiritual world all kinds of different things. And I have a feeling that when, when we get there, there will be more things than we could have ever imagined that he created there. Now, there are different species of angels, as I said, and, and the highest and the most powerful are the cherubim. And, and all of the archangels are cherubim, but all of the cherubim are not archangels. And the archangels are the highest and the most powerful of the cherubim. So they're the most powerful of the most powerful group or race or class or species, however you want to call it. Now, there's a lot of tradition and even a lot of folklore around the archangels, and there's all kinds of names for them out there. Uh, but the Bible only gives us the name of three archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and right here in its oblique way, Lucifer, or the son of the dawn mentioned in Isaiah. Now, it's clear that Satan fell sometime before the creation of Adam and Eve, and it's clear that his fall was because of the sin of pride. And just as an aside here, isn't it interesting that pride is so often described as a cure in our day, but in prior days it was understood to be a disease, and a disease of the most serious sort, not a cure. It is, after all, through pride that the devil became the devil. Now, Lucifer, before the fall, had a position of highest responsibility. He seems to have been the guardian of the earth and especially the one who overlooked and managed humanity. You see, God could rule everything in a direct and unmediated way. He certainly has that ability, but he chose to create creatures. He chose to create angels, and he chose to create human beings, and then to delegate things to them. It pleased him to do so. And God, for whatever reason, does not withdraw that power and that authority from his creatures quickly or easily once he's given it, even if they misuse that power. And so we find that in, for instance, the human family, that parents are given power, and they're given that power by God. And it's a part of the moral law of God that children are to honor their parents. And the corollary of that, of that uh, commandment is that the parents ought to behave in a way that's honorable. And yet we find that parents do horrible things to their children. And God doesn't instantly remove that authority because they're doing horrible things. We find this in government too. God sets up kings and takes down kings. Kings do horrible things. And God doesn't instantly remove the king the minute he sins. Well, it's true of angels too, apparently, because Satan is still running around loose. So God seems to have given them control, and, and Lucifer has, uh, has a, a degree of control, and, and he seems to have incorporated, God seems to have incorporated hierarchy into the creation before the fall. There are higher angels and lower angels. There are human beings with positions of greater influence and authority and power, and there are human beings of lesser influence and authority and power, and, and Lucifer was probably 
the highest of all the angels. We're not told that specifically, but it kind of makes sense to infer it. And, and he had command over myriads and authority over myriads of other lower angels. Perhaps, I would say not perhaps, probably more than a third of the angels in existence were under his command. And when he fell, he took a sizable number of those lesser angels with him. If you, if you got your Bible still open on your lap, turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 12. Now, those of you who think the book of Revelation is a chronological story about something that's going to happen later on are, are misunderstanding how God works with this kind of literature, this apocalyptic literature. And I'm not going to go through all that with you now, but but let's look at Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4, and we'll discuss when that happened. Revelation 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. <clears throat> Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them earth. Now there are several places in the book of Revelation where a star is a star until it starts doing things and it turns out to be an angel. It's clear that from the creation until the time of Christ, Satan had access to heaven. And we, we see that. We see that clearly in Job chapters 1 and 2. We, we read in Job chapter 1, now there was a day when the sons of God, that is the angels, came to present themselves before God, and Satan also came among them. And then he starts messing with Job. And, and then things changed with the coming of Christ. And we're, it's not exactly clear exactly when things change, but, but look in, in Luke 10, and you can see that he, he, Jesus sends out the 72 in Luke chapter 10. And uh, and they, they come back and they give a report, and they're extremely happy about what's happened. And, and like the, the gospel's going forth, they're, they're telling the good news about the kingdom, and, and they're getting people ready for Jesus to go into that town. And, and they say, hey, even the demons submitted to us. And, and Jesus uh, says uh, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the Spirit's or, no, I'm sorry, go back up. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, like lightning. And, and they're all excited because something big has happened. And, and in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, we, we read of a war that is in heaven where the archangel Michael and his angels rise up against the dragon and his angels. And it says that the dragon's forces were not strong enough. It says that they lost their place in heaven and they were hurled down to earth. They had a place in heaven and they lost it. And they were hurled down to earth. Up until this point, Satan maintained a seat in heaven. And he would stroll into heaven, and he would sit down in that chair, and he would put his nasty feet up on the furniture, and he would use that as a place from which he could accuse the people of God. And we see him doing that in Job 1 and 2. We also see him doing that in Zechariah 3. 
So he had a place in heaven and he controlled the earth. It says in, in Job chapter 1 that he was roaming about the earth, going to and fro, seeing what he could mess with and what he needed to do. He, he controlled the earth, he roamed the earth, and he had access to heaven. But the coming of Christ, and probably the death and resurrection of Christ, was the first definitive step in his defeat. Up until that time, he could gaze upon the throne of God, and he could sit there, and he could imagine himself sitting on the throne of God instead of God. And he thought, I'm going to win this war. He can't even throw me out of heaven. I come into heaven anytime I want. And then all of a sudden, he gets thrown out. And he gets thrown out because he's not strong enough to stay there. And, and he knows then, instantly, that his plan won't work. And so he's enraged. He's been cast out of heaven. He's, he's now trapped on earth, so to speak. And in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17, we get this long passage about how Satan's cast out and how he goes down and it says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil is filled with wrath. And then he goes off to make war against those who belong to Jesus because he hates them. And that's why he's called in this passage in Ephesians, that's why he's called the prince of the power of the air that indicates that he's been limited to this place now, this planet, this spiritual realm. So what is his power here? Well, his power over lost men and women is total. He has utter control over unsaved men and women, and he has that control, and this is the key, he has that control because lost men and women want him to. They want him to. Because they're motivated by the same thing he's motivated by. Ian Hamilton, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, quote, unconverted men and women follow the prince of the power of the air. Many are unwitting dupes of the devil. Others are willing disciples of the devil. But because of our trespasses and sins have killed our relationship with God until God makes us alive in Christ, we are the prisoners of God's implacable enemy. The tragedy of humanity outside of Christ is that it is dominated by a hate-filled spiritual power and doesn't even know it. Now that explains everything that you see going on all around you. It explains it 100%. It's not a lack of education. It's not a lack of proper upbringing. It's the fact that the devil runs the place. Now, the Bible says that, that God restrains evil in the world. It actually talks about the Holy Spirit as he who restrains evil in the world. And the Bible says that as things grow closer to the last day, God will take the brakes off. And he'll say, all right, knock yourselves out. You go do exactly what you want to do, and things will get worse and worse and worse and worse. The, the extent of his control is just staggering. And it's made manifest in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. I, I really do want you to open up to this one. I'm going to ask you to open up to Luke chapter 4 and read this for yourself so that you understand what the Bible actually says here about this situation. Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. 
And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Now, all, all of them, including his people Israel, all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and all their glory. And how is he able to do that? For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. Now notice that Jesus did not contradict him. He did not contradict him. I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Now, there's an old Puritan commentator that I just love. His name is Matthew Henry. And I had studied that passage for a number of years trying to understand it, and it always bothered me that Jesus didn't contradict him, because you'd say, well, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? The Bible says that the world is his. He wasn't talking about the physical planet. He was talking about the kingdoms, their glory, their power, their wealth, and he was saying, those are mine, they've been given to me. And then one day I read Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage, and the lights went on. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Some think that herein he pretended to be an angel of light, and that as one of the angels that was set over the kingdoms, he had outbought or outfought all the rest, and so was entrusted with the disposal of them all, and in God's name he would give them to him. But I rather take it that he claimed this power as Satan, and as delivered to him, not by the Lord, but by the kings and the people of these kingdoms who gave their power and honor to the devil. Hence he is called the God of this world, the prince of this world. It was promised to the Son of God that he should have the heathen for his inheritance. That's Psalm 2.8. Why, says the devil, the heathen are mine. They are my subjects and my votaries, but however, they shall be yours, and I will give them to you upon condition that you worship me for them and say that they are the rewards which I have given you, as others have done before you. So what Matthew Henry says is, the reason that the devil has control over this is because the worldlings give him that, by honoring him, loving him, serving him, whether they realize that's what they're doing or not. So, all of the world's governments are controlled by the devil. And they always have been. This is as true of the government of the United States or the government of Great Britain as it is the government of China or the government of Iran. You can put good Christian people, you can elect good Christian people to office, and they end up either compromised or marginalized because they have to participate as cogs in a machine that was designed by Satan. And in these last days, this fact seems to be coming clearer, isn't it? This world and its governance, this world and its entertainments, its education, its social and moral customs, its information exchange, its entertainments, its pursuit of mammon, its pursuit of worldly glory and earthly wisdom, which James 3.15 says is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, all of that is ruled by Satan. 
and it's administered in its details by lower spirits who take orders from above. And there are lots and lots and lots of these lower spirits. And all of it is arrayed against God, and it's arrayed against Jesus Christ, and it's arrayed against the people of God. The world is a howling wilderness of cold and darkness and fog, and there are spiritual predators stalking us just out of sight. And if you've got any spiritual sensitivity at all, you can feel them. You can hear them. You know that their strength is building. You know that their plans are coming to fruition. Plans that, when I sat down and started studying this, just the history of the ideas that allowed us to get to the place where the devil's gotten us to in the last 20 years, it's astonishing. He set things in motion centuries ago in the very highest places of learning in the Western world in order to bring us here to this point. Some of that you'll hear Carl Truman talk about. He probably won't talk about it this way, but you'll hear how he traces the history of ideas back until we get to the point where we are today. And it's been going on for centuries, and it's all been according to his plan. He is brilliant. He is very farsighted, and he has a lot of control. There's a storm gathering, and he's gathering it. Now, I'd love to say to you what some Christians teach. Oh, if you're converted and you're in the, covered in the blood of Jesus, Satan can't hurt you. That's not true. You do not exist in a little magic bubble filled with rainbows and butterflies and something out of My Pretty Pony. You just don't. You are being stalked by a lion. It is dark. God gave you weapons. And most of you have no idea how to use the weapons because you've never been trained to use the weapons. So many Christians talk boldly about spiritual warfare, and they're like that eight-year-old boy who watches too many cartoons and is convinced that if a burglar comes in, he'll just karate kick him like a ninja turtle, and the guy will go right down. That's how we think about spiritual warfare. It is not funny. It is not something to be taken lightly. It is deep. It is dark. And if you have any experience with it at all, you know, you know. Do you know the only guarantee that Jesus makes to you personally concerning Satan and his attacks? The only guarantee he makes to you is that you can't lose your salvation. That's it. But you can come so close that by the end of the process, you will be crystal clear on the fact that you are only saved because Jesus is the one holding on to you and not because you are holding on to Jesus. And I know because I've been there and it didn't even take someone threatening my physical life to get there. Well, what are his tactics? How can we defeat? How can we fight? I mean, we don't have a lot of time left, but, but let me give you two basic tactics that we as Christians have to deal with. They're his two main thrusts of attack against us as the people of God. And he's using them to run the tables on us right now. The first tactic is fear. Fear. He wants you to be afraid. He wants you to be afraid of the potential consequences of doing what God wants you to do. If you're struggling with an addiction, and you know that addiction is slowly killing you and there's some part of you that wants to just be done with that addiction, 
What does Satan do? You felt it if you've had an addiction. He causes you to fear. He causes you to fear what life will be like without your, cho your chosen substance. I've beat, at this point now, three different things in my life that were addictions. I beat cigarettes and I beat two prescription medications that I was dependent on. And every single time, it's to the point where I've learned the signature. Every single time when I start contemplating going, okay, tonight I will not take a sleeping pill. And the, and the devil will come up to me and say, you know, that's not a good idea. But you're going to be a total wreck tomorrow. And the day after, and the day after, and the day after that, you might go crazy. You might wreck your car. You'll certainly be non-functional. Boy, nobody likes a non-functional pastor. They'll hate you. They'll judge you. They'll look down on you. Just take that little pill. Just take a half of that little pill, and everything will be all right. And I'd get afraid. I'd be afraid to be without it. Until one day I was like, oh, Lord Jesus, just help me. And I did it. I said, whatever it costs me, I'll do it. And I learned by experience, God can be trusted. I had wonderful, beautiful people praying for me during that time. I, I, it, when fear comes in and, and you know God's causing you to do something and you're hesitant to do it because of fear, that is the devil working on you. If he causes you to fear owning Christ at work, that's the devil. If, if, if you are afraid of what obedience might cost you and your family, oh, my wife won't like that if I start doing what I'm supposed to do here, that's the devil. If he causes you to fear what the truth coming out might do, or what dying might be like, or what living might be like. Or he might cause you to fear what might happen to your children if you do what God wants you to do, or what your friends might think. He might, he might cause you to worry about where you will live. And God's going, just have confidence in me. Let's do this. And, and the devil goes, no, you need to be afraid. You need to be very, very afraid. I'll just tell you that, that Jesus does not promise that the things you fear won't happen to you. He does promise that the irredeemable ruin that lurks behind the things that you fear won't happen to you. That there is nothing that can happen to you that he can't redeem and turn into glory. And that he promises also that he will walk with you down every darkened road. He has good purpose for everything that happens to you. And that may be a hard thing to hear because some of the things that happen to us are horrible. And I don't say that lightly. But it's true. Almighty God has good purpose for everything that happens to you. And if we can just rest in him, we can live with both a healthy and a prudent respect for the things that might befall us. Well, for instance, you know, I've, I've known Christians, it's like, if I trust Jesus, I don't need to wear my seatbelt. Well, for, yeah, you do, first of all, because the law of the state says you have to. But second of all, that's just putting the Lord your God to the test. That's no different than, than Jesus being taken up onto the pinnacle of the temple and being told to jump off. No, wear your seatbelt. You know, be prudent when you drive your car. You have a healthy respect for the things that can happen to you, that might befall you. Take prudent measures to avoid them. And yet, under God, do not be paralyzed by fear to such an extent that you disobey God. Your part is to trust 
and obey, and you will learn by experience. The second technique, and I'm almost done here, the second technique that Satan uses is to get us to believe things that aren't true and to not even realize that you're doing it. And I'm not just talking about theological error either. I'm talking about really basic stuff. I'm talking about the lenses through which you look at the world. Just as an example, this is one I've been thinking about a lot lately. Let me just give you a basic one that's ruining so many lives today. It's ruining marriages. It's ruining relationships with children. It's ruining churches. And here it is. Some people, a lot of people, a lot of Christian people, have bought into the understanding that the central goal in life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Just that's, all, that's what God wants for you. He wants for you to be happy and he wants you to feel good about yourself. The central purpose of your life is not to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's not about holiness. It's not about repentance from sin. It's not about serving God. It's not about serving his people or winning lost souls. It's not about eternity. It's not about being a good soldier who endures hardship for the sake of his mission. No, no. You are here to feel good about who you are and to be happy in the life that you have. It's about feeling good about your choices that you've made. It's about, uh, about your kids feeling good about themselves and their choices so that they can be well-adjusted and happy and succeed in the world, this world that Satan runs. And once you internalize that goal, you will ruthlessly and relentlessly bend everything in your life and everyone in your life around that goal and you'll resist the call of God in your life, you'll resist the call of God in your children's lives, in your church, you'll walk away from your marriage if it seems like the thing you need to do to be happy, you'll walk away from your friends, you'll neglect God in prayer, in the study of the scriptures, and the devil will be able to feed you one lie after another to the wounding or even the destruction of your soul. Now, let me tell you, just so that you're clear, when you became a Christian, you enlisted in the military. And the church is not a cruise ship, it's a warship. And when you became a Presbyterian, you enlisted in the Marine Corps. <laughs> I'm just saying, Presbyterianism began in the 1500s with John Knox reducing Mary, Queen of Scots, to tears of frustration because he would not be bullied by her and he would not flee for his life, even though several attempts were made. And somebody asked him, John, how can you stand up to her? And he said, I fear the face of God so much, I don't fear the face of any man or woman. And he did it. He would cry out, God, give me Scotland or I die. And Presbyterianism began that way, and it extended into the next century through the covenanting period in the 1600s. And during that period, men and women were imprisoned, they were exiled, they were tortured, they were murdered, rather than let the King of England take control of the Scottish church the way he'd taken control of the English church. Did you know that there were white slaves laboring right next to black slaves in the British sugar plantations in the Caribbean? And every one of those white slaves was a Scottish Presbyterian covenanter who had defied the king. And they cheerfully paid that price. 
Presbyterian missionaries labored at a great cost amongst the unreached people groups of the world in the most inhospitable places. The whole Korean Peninsula is the most Christian nation in Asia because of Presbyterians. Presbyterians labored among the peoples of Africa, of India, Pakistan, China, the South Pacific Islands, and they labored in the Middle East. One of my favorite stories is about a a Presbyterian pastor who was pastoring a group of people in one of these South Pacific Islands, and he he, uh, found them out fishing on the Sabbath, and he came to, to rebuke them for fishing on the Sabbath day, and they conked him on the head and ate him. And you know what the Church of Scotland did? They sent another replacement. Because that's who we are. We're God's shock troops. We, we, we labored among the Indians, the Native Americans from the earliest days. Ours was a spirit of sacrifice, of deep learning, and of being as tough as boot leather for the Lord Jesus Christ. Until lately. Until lately. And we have become self-absorbed and soft and ignorant and weak simply because we have listened to the devil and his lies. If you had eyes to see right now, this room is full. It's full of beings of light, and it's also full of beings of darkness. Some people say, well, I don't believe Satan could come into the church. I don't believe that evil spirits could come into the church. Well, let me ask you, what's stronger, an evil spirit or an evil human being? Can evil human beings come into the church? They have, into this church. So if an evil human being can walk through the door, why do you think a a demon's going to bounce off the front door like some kind of magic force field here? There's not. There's not. I just want to close, and I made a slide for this, but I'm, going to, I'm just going to ask you to turn on this microphone, and I'm going to play it on my phone. When I was uh, in seminary, there we go. When I was in seminary, I pastored part-time this little Presbyterian church in Evansville, Indiana. If you've ever seen the old Roseanne show, and they'd have these montages of the, their house or that street sign or whatever. My church was on the street that that Roseanne street sign in the show was on. The guy that created the show was from Evansville, so he decided to take all the still pictures of Evansville, and it was just right down the street from that sign. And this church had been planted in 1895, and it had, by the time I was there, a 100-year reputation for nastiness. And I can remember going with one of the elders after a session meeting, and they had pictures of all their pastors on the wall. And she went through them all. She said, that's the one we fired for playing cards. That's the one we fired because he married the janitor's daughter. That's the one we fired for that. That's the one we fired for that. And I had known two of their previous pastors who they didn't fire, but who ran from them screaming as fast as they could. And here I come to be their pastor. And when I graduated, they wanted to hire me, and I was not, I was like, not just no, heck no. You know, but, but so I, I preached there every Sunday for a year, a little more than a year, actually. And, and just to tell you what the setup was with the sound system, we had a hard-wired mic on the, hard-wired mic on the pulpit, and it went back to a, an amplifier and a tape recorder, and that was it. Now, when I was getting ready to graduate, there were churches that were interested in me, and they were wanting to hear sermons. And so I was going through my sermons you know, just listening to the tapes as I did 
other things. I was going through my sermons trying to find a good one to send to people, and I heard this. talking about farmers taking an axe to break up the dirt because the plows would break because it was so hard. Something went shut up. It wasn't anything heard in the room. I didn't know it was there until I started playing that tape. I've kept that tape for 30-something years because uh, it's about worn out and the tape recorders are getting hard to find. But right there, is Satan in a church. For whatever reason, it got caught on tape saying, shut up. What's he saying to you right now? Don't listen to him. I wish he'd shut up. It's time to go. I'm hungry. None of this is true. What's he saying to you right now? And are you going to listen to it? Are you going to listen to the word of God? Or are you going to let him distract you? He's real, folks. I could tell you stories that would curl your hair. I grew up in a house that was basically infested with these things. And it's not fun. It's not a joke. And he hates your guts. Stand up and fight him. Amen and amen. Let's sing our closing song.